Which, are you an Old Crow Medicine show or are you a Darius Rucker wagon wheel? Uh, why not both? That's a good answer if not answering the question. Okay. I'd probably know more Darius Rucker than I know. Yeah. The fact I can't repeat the name to you. Old it's Crow just... Medicine show. <laughs> I, don't, it's I think it's a like sign, a Bob Dylan a, song. I know Darius um, Rucker better. Did he go to University of South Carolina? I'm saying this as if you might know it, but... I, I wouldn't know. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons I know him more is because he's from South Carolina. Interesting. I know him from the Hootie days. That's where... Uh, but he's not Hootie. Let's be clear. You know Hootie and the Blowfish. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you weren't responding. I was like, you can't not... This isn't... I don't want to... <laughs> I didn't know if you had a follow-up to the he's not Hootie. I was waiting. To nope, that's that. it. He's just... He's not Hootie. He was not. very emphatic about it over the years. Not and there's Hootie. a wonderful Key and Peele sketch about that. Oh, I love them. They're fantastic. Hey, Chris. Hey, Steph. I hear that today is a very special episode for us. It is indeed. Today is, well, this is the 200th episode of this here Bike Shed. That's amazing. 200 episodes? 200. Uh, I believe that spans like almost five years. Wow. We can look up the exact date and we will have that in the show notes as well as a link to that very first episode. Sandy and Derek's Rules, I believe, was how this all started. Yeah, I remember that because when I was joining the Bike Shed as a co-host, I went back and started listening to some of the earlier ones since it had been a while since I heard them. And yeah, that's the, the very first one. It started off with a bang. That was a great episode. How did do you remember how the bike shed was started? How it was born? Like, did Derek and Sean just decide to sit behind microphones one day? <laughs> it was spontaneous. They were just having a conversation, and someone rec- <laughs> no. Uh, I believe it started with Chad reaching out internally. So we had giant robots, um, which we still have. Chad is currently hosting along with Lindsay, our CMO. So that has taken a shift as well recently, uh, which is very exciting. But giant robots has been going for over six years now, probably almost seven years. Mm. And so we had that, but it was focused a little more on entrepreneurial business type things, the business side of software, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And so Chad opened up internally and said, hey, uh, I think we have space for a more technical podcast, something focused on Rails, JavaScript, et cetera, the sort of things that we're doing. And so there's a little bit of conversation internally, and uh, it started with Derek Pryor and Sean Griffin. And they then started getting behind microphones and talking about things. And then there were a couple of others that have also come along and helped the show as well. Yes. Lila Winner and Amanda Hill, who is now Amanda Adams, were both recurring co-hosts throughout the run of the show until back in August when things shifted over and then I joined the team. And now the most recent addition is you. And we are so happy to have you. Me too. I'm happy to be here as well. And then, of course, all of this is made possible with Tom. Tom, the tool man Obarski, the, the one and only. The Obarski. I love it. <laughs> So yes, I'm personally thrilled to have been a part of this and to have reached 200 is, that's a big number. I feel like, you know, you and I have had respectively a very small piece in that, but I'm so glad to be able to be doing that and carrying it forward. We'll take it forward to 300. And oh, wow. All right. Signing us up for 100 more. Okay, cool. I'm down. That sounds fun. Should we start smaller? Should we go 250? No, no, no. Shoot for the stars. If you miss, you're bound to hit the moon or I forget how that sequence goes, but something like that. You go for the moon and then you fall on the stars? Like you you shoot for the moon? Stars are way further, though. You're right. That doesn't make sense. Like way, way further. The saying has never made sense to me. And I say it mostly because it doesn't make sense to me unless I find it nonsense. But here Mm. we are. I love nonsense phrases, though. There's one that I've been saying lately that I'm always surprised people don't catch me on. And it's from a TV show where there's a particular character that always gets phrases wrong. And one of them is Worst Case Ontario. (laughs) Instead of worst case scenario. And I've been saying it to everyone and no one ever calls me on it. No one ever looks uh, at me. What is it from? It's from, it's not Trailer Park Boys. 
Oh, and wait, maybe it is. Maybe it is Trailer Park Boys. Also, you do have to do a little bit of introspection if you say nonsense things and people just let it slide. I'm definitely a person for whom when I say nonsense things, people are like, all right, well, you just say weird stuff all the time. So Do you you do that? You just oh, like, yeah. okay. Absolutely. I guess I do. It depends on how fast the conversation is going, if what I want to call them on and ask about, like if they've already said something else interesting and I can't say all the things. Oh, like, uh, sorry. I thought you were asking if I say nonsense things oh. and people let me slide. No, I call other people out when I'm like, wait, what did you just say? But I feel like I put enough nonsense out there that people just let me slide. But yeah, worst case, Ontario. I like worst it. case, Ontario. I Reminds it. me of a moo. Uh, it's a moo point. A moo. Oh, from Joey yeah. and Friends. It's like a cow's opinion. It just doesn't matter. <laughs> it's moo. <laughs> so welcome back from RailsConf. Well, thank you. And it is a pleasure to be back. How was it? It was great. Uh, it was my first ever RailsConf. Actually, I've been to a few other conferences last year, but I've overall not been to many and never been to a RailsConf. And it was great to get out there and meet more of the community. And Ruby and Rails have a really wonderful community. And I mostly know it through the internet and sort of indirectly. But it's wonderful to sort of be in a space with the people talking about the topics that come up in the Rails community, which I quite enjoy. I'm curious about that. I was really surprised this is your first RailsConf that you've been to. Had you considered going to others in the past and just not made it? Was this one a particular interest to you? I submitted a talk this year. It was actually a a workshop. And so I was lucky enough to be selected to speak. And that worked out really well. And then the Bike Shed, as a podcast, has historically the past few years gone to RailsConf and spoken. So it sort of directed that. As for why I haven't gone in the past... I'm not great at introducing myself to people is the thing that I find. And so conferences or meetups or things I actually struggle a bit with. I'll just kind of stand on the side and kind of look around and not want to break into a conversation or split up a group or anything like that. So I'll often find myself just sort of on the side of the room and looking on and enjoying presentations and things like that. But I think so much of the value is in interacting and I'm just, I'm not great at it. But by speaking... I kind of get up in front of a room and introduce myself once to the entire audience. And for me, that is a wonderful trade-off that I'm happy to make. So sort of a bunch of things came together, and and that was the reason. But I I had to do some introspecting and figure out, like, why didn't I go to RailsConf before? And I think that is the answer. I can relate to that where I've gone. I haven't been to many conferences, but I went to one earlier on in my career, and I really enjoyed it. But my second conference that I went to, and I think that was my first time attending RailsConf, I had heard from someone else where they talk about how it can be tough to meet people and walk up to those that you don't know and just make friends on the spot. But they recommended going to the conference without a laptop. And that was a game changer for me because my first conference that I went to, I had my laptop. So it was an easy item to lean on when I wasn't sure like how to talk to people or be friendly. I could always just open up my laptop and do something else that was interesting. And when I went without my laptop, it made it far more easy to engage with others and realize I didn't have a distraction to fall back on. So that helped me a lot with learning to talk to strangers at these events. It is interesting to me because everyone's there for sort of the same reason. They want to meet people. And so it's one of those, like, I just need to get out of my own head or I just need to speak. And then a lot of people came up and talked to me and that worked out really well. But yeah, tactics like that, like not bringing a laptop and trying to purposefully be more present or come up with the first thing to say, like, what's your icebreaker with people? All all of those sort of general networking tips, I think, you know, apply in specific at conferences. And I guess I should just work on my networking game. Do you have an icebreaker that you like? No. I'm gonna put you on the spot and find I, out. I do not. <laughs> Working for Thoughtbot isn't a bad thing when you go to RailsConf, I'll be honest. I offered stickers. I tried to 
I tried to get people to come find me because uh, I had stickers and so a number of people mm -hmm. did. And then I also left, they have a sticker table there. So I left some out and I should have worn more ThoughtBot swag. That would have been a good idea for the people that do recognize our robot Ralph. That is helpful. But mm -hmm. I think I'm sort of deflecting in that answer where I'm like, well, I could just do things so that people say hi to me. So I'm saying all of this, but like RailsConf was a real easy situation for me where yeah. most people knew who I was yeah. or a lot of people knew who I was more than at any other conference where I'm just another face in the crowd. But well, I like where you were headed when you were saying that wearing the ThoughtBot swag is helpful. So yeah. just like wearing your company swag. Yeah. So anyone that's interested in that particular company, if they recognize it, they can come up to you and start the conversation. So it's not always on you 100% of the time to initiate a conversation. Others also have the opportunity to have a, an icebreaker, a way to start talking. Yeah, I, I tend to avoid brands and labels in general, although I believe strongly in ThoughtBot and Ralph, and so I should be fine with that. And it was a thing that I actually used with other folks. Like I met someone who worked at Intercom, and I noticed the Intercom symbol on a shirt, and I said, oh, you work at Intercom, and we've historically used it as a product when we were, I think we're still actually using it to help manage upcase and customer support on things like that. So it was a great entry point, and then I got to ask, oh, what's the architecture? Are you SOA or not? And et cetera, et cetera. The answer is no, it's a big monolith, uh, which I was excited to hear. Love a good monolith. So the one other tip, and this is more for conference organizers, this wasn't necessarily uh, at play at RailsConf, but it's a wonderful idea that I've heard, and I would love to see every conference take this on, is the Pac-Man rule, which is, there's a blog post by Eric Hulsher, I believe is how you pronounce his name, and it describes the rule that when you have groups of people standing around, just kind of milling about, the rule is you can't stand in a closed circle, you have to open the circle, so leave like one spot in the circle open so it looks roughly like Pac-Man mouth, oh, uh, yeah. like Pac-Man chomping along in the video game, mm -hmm. so that there is a spot for someone. If they want to come up and join the conversation, you leave that spot open. And if someone does join, then you reopen the circle up to a reasonable point. But you try and make it so that there aren't a bunch of closed circles that you have to try to actively break into, but that there's sort of shared understanding of everybody being welcoming and physically making space for everyone. And I absolutely love that idea. I've not, I don't think I've been to a conference where that was actually used or, or said, but I love that idea. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that before, but that seems great. I have noticed that when I'm with a group of people, if we are in that sort of like circle shape and we're talking and someone comes up and joins our circle, I'll try really hard that if someone's speaking at the moment to go ahead and finish a bit further of that conversation. But as soon as there's an opportunity to address the new person that just joined, then I'll do that because I want them to know that when we see them, we acknowledge them and they are now part of whatever it is that we're, we're doing. You are the hero we need. Uh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we can definitely circle back to RailsConf, but uh, what's going on in your world? I feel like you are uh, wrapping up a fun side adventure that I don't think we've talked about yet on the podcast. I am. Uh, tonight is the final class in the Intro to Web Development class series that I've been teaching at the Roxbury Innovation Center. And there's five classes total. So tonight is the fifth and final class. Uh, each class is two hours long. It's every Thursday. We've covered a variety of topics from just learning kind of how the web works, what happens when you enter a URL into your browser, and then how to write HTML, how to use CSS. We've covered a bit of Flexbox. And then the final project, the students get to build their own website and deploy it. And then they have this project to go forward with. Fun. So. 
how did you decide how much or what specific topics? Uh, these are very new or like fully new to the world of web and HTML and, and basically everything, right? They are. It tends to vary. It could be folks that have some previous experience. Maybe they hacked around with a MySpace site back in the day. And so they know a little bit of HTML and CSS and they're just intrigued to get back into it. There's some students where they're looking to learn because they work with a classroom and they want to be able to teach their students some coding. And this is their entry point into finding out if this is something that they can learn, that then they can build curriculum to take back to their students. And then there's some that are in a role where they're working with developers and they know a little bit about what they do, but they would really like to understand more about what developers do. And so they can speak that lingo and have more insight into the process. So yeah, there's a really nice variety of like why people come to the class. So it can be challenging to cater the content so it fits for everyone. So deciding which content to use, it has helped that I've been through a number of these classes with some other organizations. So there's Girl Develop It. I would help them run classes for like an intro to web development class or intro to iOS. And then there's also Women Who Code. I've attended and helped out with some of their classes that they run. So I think over time, I've just watched students and noticed what they're excited about and what they're interested in learning. And that had a large impact in helping me decide what content I was going to generate for the class. That makes sense. So you've done this class more than once, right? Yeah, it's the third time I've done it formally with the Roxbury Innovation Center twice now. But we also ran it internally here at ThoughtBot. Has the content changed over time? Like were there topics that you had that you de-emphasized or removed or added? Or did you roughly get it right the first time and you've just been sort of honing it? I think I had it about 80% right the first time. From what I've heard from the students, they've enjoyed the content. The tweaks that I have made have been more on how can I explain this better? What Are there better diagrams? Are there better examples we can do? Can we start working on the final project a bit earlier? Because one of the things that I didn't get right in the beginning, our students want more time to work on their final project so they can put their own creativity, their own soul into it, and then they can ask specific questions about how do I make this responsive? So that is one thing that I've learned along the way is to try to give students a little more free time to just play and ask questions and not try to pack everything in so tightly that they don't have time to interact and have some downtime. You you did say that one of the things that you taught them was what happens when you type something into the URL bar or everything that happens might have been your phrasing or maybe that's just the words that popped into my head. Oh, I, I assume hope, it was I hope a I didn't trunk. Say everything. <laughs> There's a a web page or like it's a GitHub repo I think that people have made that is trying to describe everything. And so when you said that, I was like, did you do that live in your class? <laughs> well, so then when you make the contact, then the electrons fired on. I assume it was a truncated version of that. It was a very simplified version of that. It is a, an activity where I'll ask for about five different volunteers from the class, and each person will represent a different stage in the process. So someone represents like DNS, and then someone uh, so who we're communicating with is going to like the Google homepage. So someone represents the Google server, and each person will play a role. And I have pieces of paper that they essentially pass around as like the HTML and the CSS files. That's one area that I've noticed from teaching these classes is struggling with the concept of that there's HTML and CSS, and which makes sense because when you're new and taking this class, like you're not just learning one language, like you're learning two almost at the same time. So it's a lot for a student to grasp. 
And I thought that by running through this exercise, one, it just brings it home as to like how much happens when you make a request and then would also help reinforce the idea that there are these two distinct files with two distinct languages. And then that would help cement the idea of when we write HTML, we go to a particular file. If we write CSS, we go to another particular file. Having the physical artifacts help with that, the like paper, yeah. I think so. They seem to have done a better job of understanding which file to go to with these when we do the exercise versus when I've seen this class done without the exercise. Hmm. You didn't even mention JavaScript, an entire third type of file that you might send. This is true. Yeah, we don't we don't cover any JavaScript. Good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's that definitely makes sense, and you can do so much more with HTML and CSS than you could years ago. You can. You can do so much. And I find learning a lot of the HTML and CSS is a solid enough foundation that it's a good place to start. And then some of the students at the end of the class will start asking about JavaScript. But there's lots of great resources that I point them to to keep going, which is great because I feel like if they're intrigued to keep learning and then to reach for JavaScript, I feel like I've done my job where I've sort of opened a door and they've walked through it Mm -hmm. and enjoyed what they've seen. And that's really what I'm looking for is to just expose them to something so they can decide if they want to continue down that path. What you've just said is sort of a microcosm of my belief about conference talks or anything like that. Like the goal is not to deeply educate in my mind. It is to expose and encourage and like light that spark. And then for the people for whom that, that catches, then they're off and running and they're doing their own thing. So I love the way you've described that as like, I just want to get them started, get them excited, show them what is possible and then, you know, let them run with that. But yeah, so tonight's the final class. Final class. Finishing it out. We'll be done. And then I'll stay in touch with anyone that wants to stay in touch with me, usually helping out with further resources. So we'll see. It's been a great partnership with the Roxbury Innovation Center. They have a really great space for teaching. They've been very supportive and eager to have this type of material to make it available to the community. So I would love to keep this partnership going and maybe run it again in the fall or expand the course to start teaching maybe like the next level for web development. Maybe expand it. Well, maybe not JavaScript. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe Ruby and Rails, like that would be fun to teach as well. I'm just kidding. JavaScript's great. We can teach that too. It's interesting to me that some of the code editors that are growing up on the internet, it's really easy to run the entire, like all of HTML, CSS, JavaScript, run a server and things like the stuff that you can do. Because you were on like shared machines for this or the students were on shared machines, right? Or did they bring their own? It's a mix. Uh, Roxbury Innovation also provides laptops for any students that don't have one of their own. And then a number will bring their own. That makes sense. And for those who have it, I guess they could probably go a little bit deeper. But actually, I'm wondering, what did you use for like text editor and file server or how did it get on the internet? So Roxbury will set up all the laptops to have Atom, and then those that show up with their own laptops will install Atom is what we're using for the editor. And then we'll also look to use Chrome together just so we have the same experience. And then for deploying, uh, most of the exercises we go through for like the first three classes, we build up some HTML and CSS, and then it can be thrown away. Like it's just practice. And I try to remind them that this is all code that we can throw away. It's just meant to practice and to iterate on. And then it's not till the fourth class and fifth class that we start writing code that they're going to keep. And we use NeoCities for that. Have you heard of NeoCities? I have not heard of NeoCities. It's a fun site. It's free. It's pretty friendly for you to use. You can log in and they give you a default HTML and CSS file. And then you can go in and you can clear it out and add your own. So it has a nice inline text editor that you can use in the browser. And then you can check your changes. You can preview your site and then you can save it and publish it. So it has a easy flow for adding code and then seeing your changes live. I can imagine my default would be 
nine far more complicated steps before getting to something that's that straightforward and immediate. Like, oh, just use Netlify and we can just deploy it that way or just use Heroku and just spin up a... Nope, none of, none of those. It is interesting how much we take for granted and like that there are three different file types. The whole dance of DNS and going to a server and all of that. I like the idea of the visual metaphors for that. And actually physically standing people up is a wonderful way to do that. Yeah, NeoCities, they're geared towards beginners. They even have an introduction to HTML course that you can walk through. They have a, a cute mascot. Uh, it's a cat named Penelope who walks you through HTML, who I adore. Well, I wish you the best of luck with your final class tonight. I hope it goes great. Thanks. I'm looking forward to it. I'm also looking forward to setting up the next one. And how about you? How was your experience with your first RailsConf? It was wonderful. The theme of RailsConf feels really unique, or perhaps not unique in the true sense, but Ruby and Rails are an interesting community, and there were themes that I found surprising initially, but in retrospect, they, they're not surprising. Um, one was just there wasn't as much new flashy stuff. There wasn't like, hey, look at this gem that I made. It's great. It's different. It's novel. There was even an entire track that was dedicated to Rails for the long haul, which was talking about long-running applications. How do you maintain something over time? How do you migrate? I actually interviewed two folks who spoke on that track. So in the coming weeks, you will get to hear more of those stories. But it was really wonderful, that theme of, yeah, we're, we're building things. We're going to try and maintain those things. We're not necessarily looking for the new flashy thing. We're pretty sure that we figured out a good way to build web applications, at least of a certain style, and to do that in a maintainable way. And I love that theme. I love the boring is the word that comes to mind, but boring in the best possible way. I like boring in the sense, like you said, where it's we figured out good ways to solve problems and we know what to reach for. How, how old is Rails now? Is it around 10 years? Rails was initially released on December 13th, 2005, so almost 15 years. Yeah. Getting close to 15. Okay. So it makes sense to me that a number of the talks would be less on the, like, the new flashy mm-hmm. tools and more focused on like you have a Rails app that you've been developing for X number of years and you want to continue forward and maintain it. Yep. There was also definitely themes of testing and robustness and how do we do this thing better, not how do we novelly change what we're doing so there was very little of a sense that like things are broken. It's a very happy community that is like, yeah, I want to keep doing this. This seems to be good, which is wonderful to see that sort of stability and calm in a community is really nice. Is there anything new in the testing world? I'm just curious since you mentioned testing specifically, or is it more of how to improve the tests that you're writing and how to keep your tests fast? I'm actually thinking now, I don't know if there was even a single talk about testing. Maybe testing is also very stable in that world. I hadn't heard of anything new. But yeah, nothing. I, I don't think there's anything particularly new in the mm-hmm. Rails world with regard to testing. And I'm trying to, I'm sure there were talks about testing. It's a, there were seven tracks, I want to say, which is a wow, lot. So a seven lot. simultaneous things going on. Some of the workshops would sort of extend across. So there was a lot to choose from at any given moment and a lot of competition for folks. And then there's always like hallway track, just hanging out and chatting with folks. And then there's an exhibit hall. And I haven't heard of that before. Hallway track. Yeah. Uh, That's fun. <laughs> Conferences always give me that sense of FOMO, that fear of missing out Mm. when there's seven tracks. On one hand, I really appreciate the amount of information that they're sharing with the world. But on the other hand, I'm like, oh, like you've paid for this ticket and you feel like you you just can't do it all. So it's an interesting emotion for me to balance. The struggle for me is that I really love watching conference talks as videos after the fact. I don't necessarily find a ton of extra value in seeing it live. And in fact, I'll often watch them sped up on the Internet. And I still feel like I'm not missing anything for that. So I'm inclined to just kind of hang out. And my goal at a conference is to meet people and interact. 
But at the same time, as someone who did speak, I would have been really sad if no one came to the room that I was speaking in. And so there's this trade-off of wanting to be respectful and thankful to the folks that are standing up and have prepared and have put in all that work. And there's an energy when there's a crowd that's responding and, and all of that. So trying to balance that with also like, but I, I kind of just want to go grab coffee with someone and talk about what they've been up to. So it's FOMO, but then also even in a different other way, or like it's FOMO for hallway track, I guess is what I would say. FOMO for hallway track. Uh, that's that's a good point. I, I think if I were going to another conference soon, I would do the same thing where I'd go to a, a couple of talks that really stand out to me. But yeah, I'm typically there for the people more than anything else. Indeed. Uh, it was interesting. ThoughtBot, we had the very first slot. So there was the opening keynote by DHH. And then the very next slot, John Schumann spoke about uh, sprinkles of functional programming, which was a wonderful talk. I got to see it on the plane, a preview version, which I was very lucky. And I think you also saw a version of it here in the office. I did. He was practicing. How did you see it on the plane? He sat next to me and he talked me through it. <laughs> That's a good way to, uh, hey, you've got time to kill. Might as well practice. Yep. So my workshop was in the middle, and then Rachel and Joel had the very last slot in the entirety of the RailsConf three-day schedule. So it was funny that we were at the start and at the end, and that we were sort of bookending things. Mm-hmm. Were there any other themes that stood out to you about RailsConf? The main other thing that for me was highlighted by DHH's opening keynote and then sort of running through everything else and then also talking to Aaron Patterson was joy, which is perhaps unsurprising in the Ruby and Rails community. From the very beginning, Matt said he made Ruby for programmer happiness, and DHH has then been, I think, a very strong voice in trying to encourage that. And his his keynote was very interesting. He actually read a prepared statement, which is rare for him. He usually is much more of a, I think he prepares always, but more of an off-the-cuff speaker, more of a I don't know, wanting that like sincerity, but it was very interesting to see a prepared statement from him because he's actually, if you read any of his stuff online, he has a lot of words and a lot of imagery in his written work. And by virtue of writing it and then reading that, I think he was able to get a higher density of imagery and evocative phrasing and ideas and things like that. And it was a very... It was basically about do open source for the joy, not for monetary compensation and talking about some of the complexities and highlighting like Bill Gates and Microsoft as one end of the spectrum and Richard Stallman and the Free Software Foundation as another end and saying like, no, I just want to be in the middle and say, I give this away for free. You can use the gift of Rails. Uh, He declared a debt jubilee. So anyone who feels any indebtedness to the Rails community, he absolved them of that debt in the moment and saying, you are free. Use it if you want. You owe nothing back. Feel free to pay forward if you want, but you owe nothing to anyone. I officially say this, but it was that idea of trying to bring open source back to joy. And that is a pervasive theme throughout the communities, but it was interesting the, the way he structured it and the way he talked about it. And to see it again reflected when I spoke with Aaron Patterson, who also I was happy enough to get to chat with and record an episode of this here podcast with. But yeah, that combination also is really interesting to me of stability and joy of like, yep, kind of boring, but also really happy Mm -hmm. is sort of wonderful in my mind. It encapsulated what I enjoy about that community so well. Yeah, I'm intrigued by the concept of, what do you call it, debt jubilee? A debt jubilee, yes. Debt jubilee. Because on one hand, I think it's really a fun idea to tell folks, like, you're not indebted by using this. Like, you don't owe anything back. It was given to you. It was built because the people building it enjoyed working on it. But it also gives me the idea that folks are very appreciative of it. And so that's why they feel that debt of, like, I am using something that someone else built, and I feel like I should give something back to justify the fact that I have this for free. 
So on one hand, I, I like that it's setting the people free and they don't have this debt, but I also really appreciate that others are acknowledging how much work has been done before them. And that's what makes our life so stable and joyful is that we already have all of the software to work with. Yeah, I agree totally uh, with all of that. So yeah, it was really great to be there and to experience that and to see the Ruby community you know, in person. Speaking of seeing the Ruby community in person, part of what we did while we were there was have a uh, speaker meetup that a few folks came out to. We walked around a sculpture garden and uh, folks asked some questions and I answered them while walking around a sculpture garden and or uh, along the side of a street. So I think now we're going to cut to that live segment, live at the time. It's not live anymore because this is a podcast, but you got the idea. Uh, speaking of your Git workshop, I attended. It was very well done. You did a fantastic job. I was just curious, what is your process for like preparing that material to present? Mm, uh, I don't know that I have a specific process other than I start from loose. I just start writing down ideas as they come to me and sort of gather that. Then I'll put it in order, shuffle it around, and then I'll start to flesh out each of the pieces. I try and do it very organically, so wherever my interest pulls me when I'm working on a talk try and not have the end product in mind and instead sort of discover it along the way. And now that I say it, very similar to how I approach software. And how do you choose the subject matter that you choose to present and all the talks you give? Follow my interest. Usually it's something that I feel like I know, but don't have perfect mastery of. And so my talks tend to be an exploration and a way for me to learn a little bit more about a thing. Take a do you consider software developers to be engineers? Oh, do I consider software developers to be engineers? I had a wonderful conversation with Glenn Vanderberg yesterday. We talked a bunch about that topic. That's a thesis that he has talked about a bunch. My belief is similar to his, I think, which is that that's an aspirational title and one that I like to strive for. I don't know that necessarily everything that we do in our industry would align with that. To me, engineering speaks to the idea of using purpose and thinking about the way that we're working and sharing best practices and all of that. Software has a ton of that going on, but it's not always the way that we're working. So I consider it an aspirational title and one that I like to strive for, but it's not the only, it's, you know, sometimes we're just hacking around. What would it take for one to become that aspirational title? One of the things that I think we perhaps don't do the best job of in software is looking to history and looking to what has been done before. I think there's a lot of focus on what's new and what's novel. But it turns out there's been a lot of great software work that's been done and a lot of research and a lot of thinking. Um, There's also complications to that, but I think, yeah, thinking about the past a little bit. Hi, I'm Mohammed. So my question is, I work at a company where there isn't much of an open source culture. We are using a lot of open source software, but aren't really contributing in any meaningful way. So what could we do to change that? Where should one start? Uh, I think it's an interesting question. I think at the root of it is the assumption that everyone should be doing open source, which I don't necessarily think is true. I think open source is wonderful, and it gives us a ton of value, and I'm guessing you're building on top of open source software. For ThoughtBot in particular, open source has been incredibly useful in terms of getting our name out there, helping us with hiring and recruiting, helping us with just having name recognition, which as a consultancy is incredibly useful. But in general, open source is a lot of work. Um, There's maintenance and there's a lot to do. And so if you're not naturally doing it as an organization, I don't know that it's necessarily something that you need to. That said, if that is something that your, your team is interested in and you just haven't gotten the start, I would look to the tools that you're using and working with. So if you're working with Rails, are there features that you wish, wish existed in Rails? Or are there weird edge cases that you wish were better handled? And maybe start there. Or maybe there are slightly smaller projects that you can start with, maybe a gem. Maybe there's a piece of an application that you've written recently that you want to extract out and share with the world. But I think 
yeah, the, the fundamental idea that a team needs to be doing open source doesn't necessarily feel true to me. So sort of, yeah, choose your own adventure. Okay, so a follow-up to that. Sure. Um, not necessarily doing open source, but I think right now we feel that we are not essentially part of the community. So not necessarily doing open source, but what else that we can do to feel like you know, more involved, more more part of the community. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that is an, a different question and an interesting one. I think there are a lot of ways to be a part of a community. So help and support is a great one. A lot of communities have active chat channels and things like that where you can go in and help folks who are newer to that. Or even just having an active presence on Stack Overflow and responding to questions and helping people along. Or I think probably one of the best examples is blog posts. You can write a blog post saying, you know what, we ran into this issue, we solved it in this way, we think it's sort of novel, we didn't find anything when we Google searched, so here's what we did and what worked for us, and be able to share back that way. But community within open source or within the programming world is so much more than just open source or just blog posts or, you know, there's probably local meetups and things like that. So I think there are a whole bunch of different ways, and really it's whatever works for you to get out there and start meeting people and communicating, and it sounds like you want to help, like there's there's a certain aspiration for that. So yeah, I think just what would be helpful for you one month ago, and then try and be that, or six months ago, or whatever the time frame is. But. My name is Joel. Hello, Joel. We're here in this beautiful sculpture garden in uh, Minneapolis. Have you noticed any of these that you know sort of struck you, or maybe you have a personal favorite? Of the sculptures? Yes. Uh, mostly because it's the main one that I've noticed. There's this giant spoon with a cherry on it, which uh, it's a whole thing. So yeah, that one. That's a, that's a big old sculpture right there. Looking at this, I'm wondering how I would describe this and how I would name that. And it gets me thinking about, as programmers, how we name things and how naming is different in various communities. Mm. I feel like in some communities, we would name the sculpture spoon with a cherry on it. But in Ruby, we would probably find something more clever. We might. There's a lot of gems that have nonsensical names, but I feel like the culture is maybe even shifting a bit away from that just because it's hard to know what we're talking about. What does Sprinkle do? I don't know. (laughs) It's almost certainly a Sprinkle gem. I actually don't know if there is. I think names should evolve over time, and that's the thing that I believe in, and that's the thing that, like, it's much harder when you're sharing your software with people. And so if you're naming a gem, uh, it becomes harder to rename that down the road, although it is possible but I take advantage of the fact that I can rename things within my software as much as possible, and that's a thing that I try to do as much as possible to make sure that the names map to the thing that we say they are. Like, we decide, that's not actually a cherry, it turns out. That's a plum with a weird uh, thing sticking out of it. We should rename the object. It's important to be able to do that. That's definitely a cherry. Yeah, it's definitely a cherry. It is, like, it is a cherry. I'm just saying, like, if it weren't, if I said metal spoon, it's like, that's not actually metal. Or maybe we need to go more abstract. Utensil <laughs> with fruit. Utensil with fruit. Uh, we need a strategy pattern and mix some things up. <laughs> so we've been at RailsConf uh, for the past couple days. Are there any sort of larger themes that have stood out to you or maybe some big ideas, philosophical takes that have inspired you this time around? Perhaps unsurprisingly, I see that the Ruby and Rails communities, the word joy comes up more than in any other community that I work in. Uh, And the idea of happiness and the idea of motivation and the reasons that we do the things that we do and the choices that we get to make. DHH started the whole thing with his keynote talking about motivation and what we owe to open source or don't owe. And then that theme seems to be very consistent with a lot of the folks that are in the core Ruby and Rails teams and... That's wonderful. I think that's a really spectacular thing. And 
it is somewhat unique to this community. So that, that is definitely a theme that, that stuck out is why do we do the things that we do? Why do we choose Ruby? Why is it that we program even? How would you say that sort of works out in your own sort of practical day-to-day coding? For me, I find that efficiency and optimization is the thing that makes me really happy. I like to be sharpening the saw. This is my version of, I don't know that this is the best use of my time, but it makes me very happy. And so I spend a lot of time optimizing the workflows and refining things. And I guess the same thing is true in application development. I want to pull away all the cruft, get rid of everything that is not critical, that does not tell the story that I'm interested in anything that is incidental and be able to focus on that. And so that comes through in the developer tools that I work on, but it also comes through in the code that I write and was a theme in a bunch of the talks, just wanting to like, that should be in the framework. I don't want my application to have to have that code. I want the framework to do it so that I can focus on the unique things that matter to me. And that joyous creation of the novel bits, I think is how it comes through for me most clearly. How do you find a good sort of ratio between just... producing features and getting work merged and then working on some of these things that are maybe more joyful to you and maybe don't have a direct immediate impact, but as you mentioned, are sort of sharpening your tools. I have some personal rules around how and when I'll actually work on developer tools and things like that. And mostly it's during the day I'm not allowed to. (laughs) That's a, a purposeful choice that I've made. And I sort of, I will note it down or I'll put it on a separate list and I'll come back to it later or on a Friday or on a weekend. But occasionally it becomes clear that an application, like the development of an application is being hindered by an incorrect data model or an inefficiency in the way that we're working on you know, some aspect of the system. And so then I'll often give myself a time boxed amount of time to approach it. So it's like, all right, I got three hours. It's Friday. My brain's fried anyway. Let me see if I can break ground on fixing that pernicious little thing that has annoyed every single developer on the team and slowed us all down. Like maybe I can refactor the data model today. And so it's a lot of it is about being purposeful with the time and making sure that I'm being responsible within that. But otherwise, unfortunately, I'd say it's somewhat of an intuitive, like I just kind of decide and go with that. We just walked by a giant blue rooster. (laughs) We did. Uh, Yeah, so uh, this is Barrett Ingram. I'm a developer with a company called EAB uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. So let's say you have a a large legacy Rails application. Mm -hmm. How do you manage keeping things up to date? So you have maybe 50 gems that are constantly falling behind. Mm -hmm. How do you manage safely upgrading that kind of stuff without introducing bugs? I think there are a couple facets. I think the first for me is a test suite, a strong, robust test suite that covers as much of the application behavior as I can get in there. And so that's something that's always going to be evolving and I'm always going to be working on. But I'm going to use that as a tool to determine whether or not upgrades work. From there, actually, I think there's been a lot of great work in automation around this, like Dependabot and similar tools that will automatically open up pull requests against the application to say, like, hey, this this bot changed. It does this actually get kind of noisy. I really wish they would batch them on, like, a weekly basis, but that is an automated way to do that. And then beyond that, like, the Ruby version, that's going to change much less frequently, but that's still something that you can just try and instill that within the team. But I think the core to it is... Ideally, those are each going to be little incremental steps. They're going to be like, oh, bump the gem, test suite screen, cool. And if that's not the experience, then you're going to feel pain and resistance to doing those sort of things. So I would start from that foundational layer of like, 
is this easy to do one time? And if it's not, then I try and solve that problem. And then from there, the actual, like, how do you maintain it? Kind of just do it at that point, but you have to get it to the place that it's easy in order to be able to do that. Yeah, that's the classic example of like, do the hard work to make the change easy. Um, yeah. And I think that's mostly it's investing in a test suite and, and those sort of things. Can you ever have too many tests? Oh, absolutely. Uh, tests constrain a system, and so it is possible to over-constrain a system, a system that is poorly constrained. Like I think of a stool with three legs that is constrained, and it's going to stand, and it's going to stay level. But if you add a fourth leg and it's the wrong height, your system actually kind of wobbles. And I think tests can actually do the same thing. If we over-constrain or under-constrain, if we're testing things that are incidental, then... It's less in, say, the count of tests, but it's in what we're testing. I want my tests to constrain the system such that any valid state, like say I change a string, that shouldn't break the test. So I want to write my tests in a way that changing that string shouldn't break it, uh, which is possible with things like translations. And there are a bunch of techniques for that. Um, but yes, testing is a unfortunately subtle art form at times. Uh, but the heuristic I try and use is what is the behavior that I want in the system? And I'll even say it in words, like talking to a pair if I'm working with someone. Uh, yeah, we want the thing, like when we pass in X, we should get out 10. When we pass in Y, we should get out 15. Cool, those are the tests. And ideally not poke at any of the internals or anything like that. Thank you. Uh, oh, thank you. So, so we're in the Sculpture Garden. Uh, local favorite Semi-Sonic wrote a song dedicated entirely to this beautiful park in which we stand. I don't know. This, it's, this is a great location you guys picked. We actually work for Minnesota Public Radio, which has a concert here with the Walker every summer. Is that the Walker? Rock, yeah, Rock Walker the Garden. Yeah, so it's Rock oh. the Garden. And yeah, they put two stages up. It's uh, local international acts. Twilight in the Sculpture Garden. This is quintessential Minnesota right here, so good choice. You picked well, Tom. Yeah, we appreciate it. So, Chris, do you bike in Boston, bicycle? I do not. I actually don't have a bicycle right now, which is unfortunate, nor a shed to put my bicycle in. Uh, my question would be, like, uh, what would you compare bicycling in Bo- to Minneapolis to Boston? What do you think? Uh, my guess is it's much more straightforward here, as your roads are more of a grid, and Boston's roads are more of in a confusing labyrinth. Uh, and dangerous at times, unfortunately. Do but you I think both, cobblestone? Not a ton of cobblestone, thankfully. And I don't think, for biking paths, I don't think you'll run into that. But definitely some. Not none cobblestone. So. Well, if you get some biking... And- I've got to live up to the name, it's yeah, true. It'll be yeah. fun. So you've been doing a lot of engineering management recently, I guess. Uh, more of a manager role than previously. What have you learned that you wish you had knew when you started? I think one of the things that stood out to me when I started was just how different everyone is. This may sound naive or obviously wrong, but I kind of assumed everyone's one-on-ones were just like mine because that was the only one I had attended. And then each person that I'm talking to has a different point of view, a different thing that they want to focus on, a different way of communicating, a different way that they want to receive feedback and receive support, a different way that I can understand how I can best help them. So that is probably the thing, is, is trying to, understanding that that will be the case, and then trying to work with each of the people on my team to make sure that I understand how best to support them, and trying to get to that place as early as possible. So. And what have you find to be most challenging? It's very interesting, the contrast between a typical developer day 
where I'm often able to get into a deeper focus zone and really dial in and, and focus on a problem and spend all of my time and load up all of that context into my head. Whereas for me, typically my week is Monday through Wednesday is working on a client project. So doing coding, doing you know all of those sort of things. And then Thursday, I'll often have a bunch of one-on-ones. I'll often record the bike shed and just the way the day gets chopped up into these tiny little pieces and I have to context switch constantly. That is very difficult and I really enjoy the work. So I've been enjoying it, but I notice just how tired I am at the end of the day on Thursdays, just kind of spent. Yeah. So you talked about joy earlier and how joy is one of the main things that, that stand out in the Ruby community. What has been the thing in programming that has given you the most joy recently? I have really enjoyed working with GraphQL APIs of late. Feels like we're talking we're having the right conversation. Feels like a different conversation and the right one. And there's still complexity in there. There's new things, but there's a novelty, which is part of for me something that, that keeps it interesting. But there's also it feels to me like we're heading in a meaningful direction with that as a technological foundation. And the conversations have shifted from JSON serialization to what is true about our platform. And in terms of some of what I was talking about with Joy earlier, of I like when we're pulling away the cruft, the extra things that are incidental and allowing me to focus on the core issues, the, the domain, the platform that I'm building. And GraphQL feels like it does that in a really profound and meaningful way. So yeah, that's been joyful for me. And something for me personally, what makes ThoughtBot a great place to work? Ooh, probably the thing that stands out most to me is the fact that ThoughtBot exists on purpose. Everything that we do, we do for a reason and we are constantly evolving. So what ThoughtBot was five years ago is not what we are today. And that's because we are constantly evaluating, reassessing and refining what the company is and how the company works and our approach to software and our approach to actually building a company. So although there are some really great individual features, it's that continuous improvement and desire to improve that is probably the thing that stands out most. Sort of a meta answer, but it is the thing that stands out to me after a bunch of years being there. What advice would you give for someone who wants to join ThoughtBot? Mm. Well, I mean, in general, uh, apply. That's, that's probably a starting point. When you're applying, I would say we have a, a pretty limited field set. And so I would love for people to give a little more information in that. Uh, we ask only a handful of questions. And it's a really hard way to get to know someone. And so take that opportunity to tell us a little bit of a story. Tell us about who you are and what you believe about software or what you think is important or why ThoughtBot uniquely is interesting. That's sort of general, I think, job finding advice is it's as much of a sales pitch on both sides. Yeah. So if you're applying for something, shouldn't you say, I'm looking for work because I would like money? That's maybe not going to be the most effective way. But if you say, I'm really interested in this company, I have followed it for many years, I believe in you know, the way that you approach software, that's definitely going to resonate and, and stand out. I would like to continue the conversation that we were having yesterday. Mm. Yeah. So, Remind me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started to ask you, being in a very flat company, mm, yes, there aren't you know like a lot of different titles that developers could grow into. Could we talk a little bit about how to help developers like grow in their career without mm -hmm. introducing arbitrary levels? I guess. 
Yes. I think an interesting bit is sort of a historical view of ThoughtBot where ThoughtBot started as, uh, and this is always interesting for me because I sometimes end up talking about historical context of ThoughtBot, but it's from times before I started, so <laughs> I more know it anecdotally and I sometimes get it wrong, uh, which is always fun. But my understanding is ThoughtBot started as a very flat organization, designers and developers just doing the work. And then slowly over time, there have been different roles that have been added. Um, mm -hmm. For instance, Tom, who is the producer of this here podcast. Um, yeah, it's Tom. We have a marketing team now with a CMO. Uh, we have historically had a CMO, but having a whole marketing team is different. Mm -hmm. And then we've introduced a little bit of structure within the roles that developers have. So developers in particular can be an apprentice, a developer, or a senior developer. Yeah. Uh, and then we also have development director, mm -hmm. which is a role that has some aspects of management in it. And then we have our chief technology officer. But we've been very careful to add sort of each of those layers, any of those distinctions. And I like that purposeful approach. That's the thing that stands out to me about ThoughtBot is not adding hierarchy for hierarchy's sake, but trying yeah. to do it in a structured way that maps to pain that we're feeling. Yes, um, I agree with all of these, all of these things. But I think an interesting question is, a lot of folks end up going towards a management direction, like as their career goes on, that's sort of the path that you have to go. And I think that's complicated, uh -huh. uh, particularly as I look over to like other engineering fields, I see there being more of a culture of senior and principal engineer and additional levels and additional longevity to a truly technical career path. Yeah, and which is a little less present in software, though I do think other, just from talking to like some mechanical engineering friends that I have, I do think that other types of engineering probably experience this pain, but also maybe a little less so because we kind of throw around different titles that don't translate between companies. So you could be a senior engineer. Oh, there's like an L2, and then I'm a senior, yeah. and then I'm an archmage. And yeah, and then you go to a different company that has a totally different organizational yeah. structure, whereas, and you're a mechanical engineer, so maybe you could speak to this, but I think mechanical engineering has like, a consistent set of levels. There are some specific ones, but I think even within that, you'll probably see some within that structure. So there's legal ones, which like a principal engineer is a legal title referring to your ability mm -hmm. to sign off on drawings, I want to say. It was a thing that I was not interested in. <laughs> for being. It was a lot of responsibility, and I was like, what? what's in it for me? <laughs> it's a very selfish thing to say, but... No, uh, but it's also your entire life so I feel like true. yeah I, uh, I care a bunch about that <laughs> yeah that's fair um, but so I, I think that idea of, of having more variety in career paths is interesting I think ThoughtBot also exists in sort of an interesting space where very purposefully for as far as I understand it the existence of the company the goal has not been to get towards any exit or there there hasn't really been this long game yeah. other than building a company that we want to work at that yeah. is the consistent theme as far as I've understood it and it's sort of to a certain degree, it's incongruous with like most people are like, well, I got I to gotta get a raise next year and I got to be doing uh -huh. a new thing and I've got to be growing and learning. And it's interesting to try and align those two sort of ideas. Yep. I think for us, a lot of it can be how do we get better at this job? How do we work on new technologies? How do we become even more efficient and be able to work on the harder problems instead? Yeah, oh, yeah I'm, not, I'm not sure how to answer any of these, to be clear. <laughs> these are just things that I'm saying. Which, I mean, there's no clear solution to this that I've seen a lot of companies struggle with it I think I worked at a consulting company before this that was very like growth focused because they were interested in like we're going to grow really rapidly and then we're looking to probably get acquired which they ultimately did or like go public though I think 
That would have been weird for a consulting company to go public. And because of all of that growth, they did end up introducing like more levels, and that made sense. I think that what you're saying about developers being fulfilled maybe by continually learning and having that be a source of job fulfillment, I relate to that. It's interesting to think about DHH and, and sort of his career arc because it's been largely the same for a while. And he talked in the keynote about a period where he was like, well, I guess I kind of did it all already. And then was able to find for himself a version of continuing on that made him very happy that was intrinsic motivation. And maybe this is why companies struggle with this and companies struggle with retention in our industry because it's what the individual will find rewarding at a certain point. Like, at a certain point, like, you feel like a senior, then what do you want? Like, do you want to go into management? Do you want to continue learning? Do you want to do more open source? One anecdote that comes to mind is about Google. And my understanding is that their internal structure allows for a lot of lateral moves. They have different teams, and you can actually move between those teams Uh um, somewhat freely. And I don't know how freely, because I imagine too much churn and that would just make it very hard to get anything done. You have to onboard to a team, you have to understand what's the thing that we're working on and what are the tools that we're using. Yeah. Um, But that idea of allowing for movement but still keeping people within the company is interesting. (laughs) It'd be harder for a smaller company like ThoughtBot, but it is an interesting model of to what degree is novelty a part of this? And if so, can we provide it by just allowing people to move within the roles that we have? Yes. I personally find that sort of lateral growth of like We've been doing Rails apps for a long time, so solving a different sort of problem, by which I mean like not learning another web framework, but learning a statically typed language or... uh, Machine learning. Yeah, exactly. Fun things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That I find rewarding because I feel like I'm starting from the beginning again. To a certain degree for me, I think working at a consultancy has been incredibly useful Mm -hmm. in that the problems, although there are common themes, I'm consistently being put into a new situation that has new novel challenges and different technological and process type things to work through. It's just new problems all the time, Uh Um, which can actually be tiring, but uh, a lot of the time I look forward to that change from time to time. I'm like, I'm ready. I'm ready to, let's get a new thing in here. What's next? Well, with that, I think we can probably wrap up. Uh, Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed the episode or any others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed. I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can reach us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.